Part One, Chapters One to Three of the Voyages of Doctor Doolittle by Hugh Lofting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part One, Chapter One: The Cobbler's Son. My name was Tommy Stubbins, son of Jacob Stubbins, the cobbler of Puddleby on the Marsh, and I was nine and a half years old. At that time, Puddleby was only quite a small town. A river ran through the middle of it, and over this river there was a very old stone bridge called King's Bridge, which led you from the marketplace on one side to the churchyard on the other. Sailing ships came up this river from the sea and anchored near the bridge. I used to go down and watch the sailors unloading the ships upon the river wall. The sailors sang strange songs as they pulled upon the ropes. I learned these songs by heart and I would sit on the river wall with my feet dangling over the water and sing them with the men, pretending to myself that I, too, was a sailor. For I longed always to sail away with those brave ships when they turned their backs on Puddleby Church and went creeping down the river again, across the wide, lonely marshes to the sea. I longed to go with them out into the world to seek my fortune in foreign lands, Africa, India, China, and peru but when they got round the bend in the river and the water was hidden from view you could still see their huge brown sails towering over the roofs of the town moving onward slowly like some gentle giants that walked among the houses without noise what strange things would they have seen i wondered when next they came back to anchor at kingsbridge and dreaming of the lands i had never seen I sit there, watching till they were out of sight. Three great friends I had in Puddleby in those days. One was Joe, the muscle man, who lived in a tiny hut by the edge of the water under the bridge. This old man was simply marvelous at making things. I never saw a man so clever with his hands. He used to mend my toy ships for me, which I sailed upon the river. He built windmills out of packing cases and barrel staves and he could make the most wonderful kites from old umbrellas. Joe would sometimes take me to the muscle boat, and when the tide was running out, we would paddle down the river as far as the edge of the sea to get mussels and lobsters to sell. And out there on the cold, lonely marshes, we would see wild geese flying, and curlews and redshanks, and many other kinds of seabirds that live among the samphire and the long grass of the great salt fen. And as we crept up the river in the evening, when the tide had turned, we would see the lights on Kingbridge twinkle in the dusk, reminding us of tea-time and warm fires. Another friend I had was Matthew Mugg, the cat's meat man. He was a funny old person with a bad squint. He looked rather awful, but was really quite nice to talk to. He knew everybody in Puddleby, and he knew all the dogs and all the cats. In those times, being a cat's meat man was a regular business and you could see one nearly any day going through the streets with a wooden tray full of pieces of meat stuck on skewers crying meat meat people paid him to give his meat to their cats and dogs instead of feeding them on dog biscuits or the scraps from the table i enjoyed going round with old matthew and seeing the cats and dogs come running to the garden gates whenever they heard his call sometimes he let me give the meat to the animals myself and I thought this was great fun. He knew a lot about dogs, and he would tell me the names of the different kinds as we went through the town. 
he had several dogs of his own one a whippet was a very fast runner and matthew used to win prizes with her at the saturday coursing races another a terrier was a fine ratter the cat's meat man used to make a business of rat catching for the millers and farmers as well as his other trade of selling cat's meat my third great friend was luke the hermit but of him i will tell you more later on i did not go to school because my father was not rich enough to send me but i was extremely fond of animals so i used to spend my time collecting birds eggs and butterflies fishing in the river rambling through the countryside after blackberries and mushrooms and helping the mussel man mend his nets yes it was a very pleasant life i lived in those days long ago though of course i did not think so then i was nine and a half years old and like all boys i wanted to grow up not knowing how well off i was with no cares and nothing to worry me always i longed for the time when i should be allowed to leave my father's house to take passage on one of those brave ships to sail down the river through the misty marshes to the sea out into the world to seek my fortune chapter two i hear the great naturalist one early morning in the springtime when i was wandering among the hills at the back of the town i happened to come upon a hawk with a squirrel in its claws it was standing on a rock and the squirrel was fighting very hard for its life the hawk was so frightened when i came upon it suddenly like this that it dropped the poor creature and flew away i picked the squirrel up and found that two of its legs were badly hurt so i carried it in my arms back to the town when i came to the bridge i went into the muscle man's hut and asked him if he could do anything for it joel put on his spectacles and examined it carefully then shook his head young critter's got a broken leg he said and another badly cut and all i can mend you your boats tom but i haven't the tools nor the learning to make a broken square seaworthy this is a job for a surgeon and for a right smart one and all there be only one man i know who could save young critter's life and that's john doolittle who is john doolittle i asked is he a vet no said the muscle man he's no vet dr doolittle is a naturalist what's a naturalist a naturalist said joe putting away his glasses and starting to fill his pipe is a man who knows all about animals and butterflies and plants and rocks and all john doolittle is a very great naturalist i'm surprised you've never heard of him and you daft over animals he knows a whole lot about shellfish that i know from my own knowledge he's a quiet man and don't talk much but there's folks who do say he's the greatest naturalist in the world where does he live i asked over the oxenthorpe road to the side the town don't know just which house it is but most anyone across there could tell you i reckon go and see him he's a great man so i thanked the muscle man took up my squirrel again and started off towards the oxenthorpe road the first thing i heard as i came into the marketplace was someone calling meat meat there's matthew mug i said to myself he'll know where this doctor lives matthew knows everyone so i heard across the marketplace and caught him up matthew i said do you know doctor doolittle do i know john doolittle said he well 
I should think I do. I know him as well as I know my own wife. Better, I sometimes think he's a great man, a very great man. Can you show me where he lives? I asked. I want to take this squirrel to him. It has a broken leg. Certainly, said the cat's meat man. I'll be going right by his house directly. Come along, and I'll show you. So off we went together. Oh, I've known John Doolittle for years and years, said Matthew as we made our way out of the marketplace. But I'm pretty sure he ain't home just now. He's away on a voyage, but he's liable to be back any day. I'll show you his house, and then you'll know where to find him. All the way down the Oxenthrope Road, Matthew hardly stopped talking about his great friend, Dr. John Doolittle, M.D. He talked so much that he forgot all about calling out, Meat! Until we both suddenly noticed that we had a whole procession of dogs following us patiently. Where did the doctor go to on this voyage? I asked as Matthew handed round the meat to them. I couldn't tell you, he answered. Nobody never knows where he goes, nor when he's going, nor when he's coming back. He lives all alone except for his pets. He's made some great voyages and some wonderful discoveries. Last time he came back, he told me he'd found a tribe of red Indians in the Pacific Ocean. Lived on two islands, they did. The husbands lived on one island, and the wives lived on the other. Sensible people, some of them savages. They only met once a year, when the husbands came over to visit the wives for a great feast. Christmas time, most likely. Yes, he's a wonderful man, is the doctor. And as for animals, well, there ain't no one knows as much about him as what he does. How did he get to know so much about animals? I asked. The cat's meat man stopped and leaped down to whisper in my ear. He talks their language, he said in a hoarse, mysterious voice. The animal's language? I cried. Why, certainly, said Matthew. All animals have some kind of a language. Some sorts talk more than others. Some only speak in sign language, like deaf and dumb. But the doctor, he understands them all birds as well as animals. We keep it a secret, though, him and me, because folks only laugh at you when you speak of it. Why, he can even write animal language. He reads aloud to his pets. He's wrote history books and monkey talk, poetry and canary language, and comic songs for magpies to sing. It's a fact. He's now busy learning the language of the shellfish, but he says it's hard work, and he's caught some terrible colds, holding his head under water so much. He's a great man. He certainly must be, I said. I do wish he were home so I could meet him. Well, there's his house, look, said the cat's meat man. That little one at the bend in the road there, the one high up, like it was sitting on the wall above the street. We were now come beyond the edge of the town, and the house that Matthew pointed out was quite a small one standing by itself. There seemed to be a big garden around it, and this garden was much higher than the road, so you had to go up a flight of steps in the wall before you reached the front gate at the top. I could see that there were many fine fruit trees in the garden, for their branches hung down over the wall in places, but the wall was so high I could not see anything else. 
when we reached the house matthew went up the steps to the front gate and i followed him i thought he was going to go into the garden but the gate was locked a dog came running down from the house and he took several pieces of meat which the cat's meat man pushed through the bars of the gate and some paper bags full of corn and bran i noticed that this dog did not stop to eat the meat as any ordinary dog would have done but he took all the things back to the house and disappeared he had a curious wide collar round his neck which looked as though it were made of brass or something then we came away the doctor isn't back yet said matthew or the gate wouldn't be locked what were all those things in paper bags you gave the dog i asked oh those were provisions said matthew things for the animals to eat the doctor's house is simply full of pets i give the things to the dog while the doctor's away and the dog gives them to the other animals and what was that curious collar he was wearing round his neck that's a solid gold dog collar said matthew it was given to him when he was with the doctor on one of his voyages long ago he saved a man's life how long has the doctor had him i asked oh a long time jip's getting pretty old now that's why the doctor doesn't take him on his voyages any more he leaves him behind to take care of the house every monday and thursday i bring the food to the gate here and give it him through the bars he never lets anyone come inside the garden while the doctor's away not even me though he knows me well but you'll always be able to tell if the doctor's back or not because if he is the gate will surely be open so i went off home to my father's house and put my squirrel to bed in an old wooden box full of straw and there i nursed him myself and took care of him as best i could till the time should come when the doctor would return and every day i went to the little house with the big garden on the edge of the town and tried the gate to see if it were locked sometimes the dog jip would come down to the gate to meet me but though he always wagged his tail and seemed glad to see me he never let me come inside the garden chapter three the doctor's home one monday afternoon towards the end of april my father asked me to take some shoes which he had mended to a house on the other side of town they were for a colonel bellows who was very particular i found the house and rang the bell at the front door the colonel opened it stuck out a very red face and said go round to the tradesman's entrance go to the back door then he slammed the door shut i felt inclined to throw the shoes into the middle of his flower bed but i thought my father might be angry so i didn't i went round to the back door and there the colonel's wife met me and took the shoes from me she looked a timid little woman and had her hands all over flour as though she were making bread she seemed to be terribly afraid of her husband whom i could still hear stumping round the house somewhere grunting indignantly because i had come to the front door then she asked me in a whisper if i would have a bun and a glass of milk and i said yes please after i had eaten the bun and milk i thanked the colonel's wife and came away then i thought that before i went home i would go and see if the doctor had come back yet i had been to his house once already that morning but i thought i'd just like to go and take another look my squirrel wasn't getting any better and i was beginning to be worried about him so i turned into the oxenthorpe road and started off towards the doctor's house 
on the way i noticed that the sky was clouding over and that it looked as though it might rain i reached the gate and found it still locked i felt very discouraged i had been coming here every day for a week now the dog jip came to the gate and wagged his tail as usual and then sat down and watched me closely to see that i didn't get in i began to fear that my squirrel would die before the doctor came back i turned away sadly went down the steps on to the road and turned towards home again i wondered if it were supper time yet of course i had no watch of my own but i noticed a gentleman coming towards me down the road and when he got nearer i saw that it was the colonel out for a walk he was all wrapped up in smart overcoats and mufflers and bright-coloured gloves it was not a very cold day but he had so many clothes on he looked like a pillow inside of a roll of blankets i asked him if he would please tell me the time he stopped grunted and glared down at me his red face growing redder still and when he spoke it sounded like the cork coming out of a ginger beer bottle do you imagine for one moment he spluttered that i am going to get myself all unbuttoned just to tell a little boy like you the time and he went stumping down the street grunting harder than ever i stood still a moment looking after him and wondering how old i would have to be to have him go to the trouble of getting his watch out and then all of a sudden the rain came down in torrents i have never seen it rain so hard it got dark almost like night the wind began to blow the thunder rolled the lightning flashed and in a moment the gutters of the road were flowing like a river there was no place handy to take shelter so i put my head down against the driving wind and started to run towards home i hadn't gone very far when my head bumped into something soft and i sat down suddenly on the pavement i looked up to see whom i had run into and there in front of me sitting on the wet pavement like myself was a little round man with a very kind face he wore a shabby high hat and in his hand he had a small black bag i'm very sorry i said i had my head down and i didn't see you coming to my great surprise instead of getting angry at being knocked down the little man began to laugh <laughs> you know this reminds me he said of a time once when I was in India. I ran full tilt into a woman in a thunderstorm, but she was carrying a pitcher of molasses on her head, and I had treacle in my hair for weeks afterwards. The flies followed me everywhere. I didn't hurt you, did I? No, I said. I'm all right. It was just as much my fault as it was yours, you know, said the little man. I had my head down too. But look here, we mustn't sit talking like this. You must be soaked. I know I am. How far have you got to go? My home is on the other side of the town. I said as we picked ourselves up. My goodness, but that was a wet pavement, said he. And I declare it's coming down worse than ever. Come along to my house and get dried. A storm like this can't last. He took hold of my hand and we started running back down the road together. As we ran, I began to wonder who this funny little man could be, and where he lived. I was a perfect stranger to him, and yet he was taking me to his own home to get dried. Such a change after the old red-faced colonel, who had refused even to tell me the time. Presently we stopped. Here we are, he said. I looked up to see where we were, and found myself back at the foot of the steps, leading to the little white house with the big garden. 
my new friend was already running up the steps and opening the gate with some keys he took from his pocket. Surely, I thought, this cannot be the great Dr. Doolittle himself. I suppose, after hearing so much about him, I had expected someone very tall and strong and marvelous. It was hard to believe that this funny little man with the kind smiling face could be really he. Yet here he was, sure enough, running up the steps and opening the very gate which I had been watching for so many days. The dog Jip came rushing out and started jumping up on him and barking with happiness. The rain was splashing down heavier than ever. Are you Dr. Doolittle? I shouted as we sped up the short garden path to the house. Yes, I'm Dr. Doolittle, said he, opening the front door with the same bunch of keys. Get in! Don't bother about wiping your feet. Never mind the mud. Take it in with you. Get in out of the rain. I popped in, he and Jip following. Then he slammed the door behind us. The storm had made it dark enough outside. But inside the house, with the door closed, it was as black as night. Then began the most extraordinary noise that I have ever heard. It sounded like all sorts of kinds of animals and birds calling and squeaking and screeching at the same time. I could hear things trundling down the stairs and hurrying along passages. Somewhere in the dark, a duck was quacking. A cock was crowing. A dove was cooing. An owl was hooting. A lamb was bleating and Jip was barking. I felt bird's wings fluttering and fanning near my face. Things kept bumping into my legs and nearly upsetting me. The whole front hall seemed to be filling up with animals. The noise, together with the roaring of the rain, was tremendous, and I was beginning to grow a little scared when I felt the doctor take hold of my arm and shout into my ear. Don't be alarmed. Don't be frightened. These are just some of my pets. I've been away three months and they are glad to see me home again. Stand still where you are till I strike a light. My gracious, what a storm. Just listen to that thunder. So there I stood in the pitch black dark, while all kinds of animals which I couldn't see chattered and jostled around me. It was a curious and a funny feeling. I had often wondered when I had looked in from the front gate what Dr. Doolittle would be like and what the funny little house would have inside it. But I never imagined it would be anything like this. Yet, somehow, after I had felt the doctor's hand upon my arm, I was not frightened, only confused. It all seemed like some queer dream, and I was beginning to wonder if I was really awake when I heard the doctor speaking again. My blessed matches are all wet. They won't strike. Have you got any? No, I'm afraid I haven't. I called back. Never mind, said he. Perhaps Dab-Dab can raise us a light somewhere. Then the doctor made some funny clicking noises with his tongue, and I heard someone trundle up the stairs again and start moving round in the rooms above. We waited quite a while without anything happening. Will the light be long in coming? I asked. Some animal is sitting on my foot, and my toes are going to sleep. No, only a minute, said the doctor. She'll be back in a minute. And just then I saw the first glimmerings of a light around the landing above. At once all the animals kept quiet. I thought you lived alone, I said to the doctor. So I do, said he. It is Dab-Dab who is bringing the light. 
I looked up the stairs, trying to make out who was coming. I could not see around the landing, but I heard the most curious footstep on the upper flight. It sounded like someone hopping down from one step to the other, as though he were using only one leg. As the light came lower, it grew brighter and began to throw strange jumping shadows on the walls. Ah, at last, said the doctor. Good old Dab-Dab. And then I thought I really must be dreaming. For there, craning her neck round the bend of the landing, hopping down the stairs on one leg, came a spotless white duck, and in her right foot she carried a lighted candle. End of Part 1 Chapter 3